0: All right. so greetings and welcome everyone. I hope everyone has had a great as well as a reminder I'll start by saying that I'm Tanisha Taylor I'm the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at MLAC and I want to welcome you back. This is our closing, our closing, our closing, so we're in the home stretch. And I hope everyone has had a great conference experience thus far. If you've attended any of my trainings, you know that I like to kind of get a sense of the room and see where people are before Um, I get started. So if you don't mind, if you wouldn't mind just using the chat box, the chat feature is available. And I just want you to drop a word that describes what your conference experience has been like thus far. So go ahead, use the chat feature in one word, just describe, use one word to describe what your conference experience has been like thus far. Just want to get a sense of the energy and what's in the room. So the chat should be enabled. Chat is disabled. Shade, can we go ahead and um, turn that chat on please? One second here. Just trying to get this chat enabled. All right, Let's See. All right. well, maybe that's not gonna work out for us today, which is totally fine. We'll get the chat enabled a little bit later and have people chime in. Um, and I was going to say that I was gonna use some of the words that popped up into the chat box and to say that I'm really happy that everyone's having such an amazing experience. I'm happy that folks are feeling like things have been transformative. I'm happy that people are feeling like they're learning new things and they're being challenged and pushed Um, outside of their comfort zone. And hopefully today on our last day, you'll feel like you're still having um, a good experience and that you're learning some things and that you're sitting in your discomfort, you're having some hard conversations, you're pushing yourself to think outside of the box, and you're also having some fun. Hopefully some of you have had the opportunity to join the yoga sessions um, following uh, the keynote from Gilly Siegel who we'll introduce in just a moment. You'll come back and um, join us for a show stopping performance from Joe Kamara. And also, you'll join us at the end of the day today for another yoga set- session and also a drink demonstration by MLAC's own Danny. Um, before I introduce our closing keynote, I would like to turn things over to MLAC's Executive Director, Lynn Parker, for a few closing remarks. Lynn.
1: Thank you, Tanisha, so much. Good morning, everyone. I am so very pleased to be here with all of you today and want to say what an excellent experience and opportunity the last two days have been. I hope all of you have been able to attend all or most of the sessions so far. The conversations and presentations have been sobering, they've been inspiring, they've been uplifting and sometimes difficult. I'm confident we'll all continue to gain and learn a lot as we have during the past two days. We've been challenged. We may have felt discomfort and unease, but also hopeful and committed to truly doing better and focused on the steps we can all take together to make long-term change. You've heard from such a group of ex beyond about ways we can tackle inequity and how to intentionally and proactively incorporate racial justice into a legal aid practice and legal aid advocacy. As we go through the day today, I urge all of us to continue to think about how our organizations can and will commit to centering race in the work we all do. This is a mandate for all of us. As you know, this conference is the second in a two-part series, starting with the MCLE Annual Legal Services Conference and continuing with this conference. I wanna be sure to thank the team of people who worked on making the MCLE conference such a success. An immense and enormous thanks to all of the excellent speakers who have engaged us so far and I know will continue to do today and have reminded us there is so much more to be done. And of course, thank you so much to Tonisha Taylor and the team at MLAC for their vision in creating and designing this remarkable conference. I'm really so much looking forward to today's session. I thank you again for being here today and now I'll turn it back to Tonisha.
0: Thank you, Lynn. Those were excellent, excellent words. And I think what stood out to me is that you said, it's paraphrase, but centering into interrac- racism and legal aid is a mandate. It's imperative, it's time, it's a mandate. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, before I introduce our keynote speaker for the day, Gilly Siegel, I wanted to try the chat box feature again. So let's go ahead and see if we can try it and just drop some words, one word in the chat on what the experience, the conference experience has been like for you thus far.
1: Not working?
0: Okay, well, the universe must not be aligned today for that to happen. So that's cool. We're gonna just jump right in and I'm gonna introduce our keynote speaker today, Gilly Siegel. Gilly Siegel grew up in Tampa, Florida. She graduated from the Hebrew University Magna Cum laude. After college, she attended Emory School of Law where she attained her certificate in intellectual property law, business and technology in a joint program run by Emory and Georgia Tech, Completed, competed with Moot Court and ultimately graduated with honors. Gilly began her career at Alston & Bird as an attorney in the Intellectual Property and Technology Transactions Group. From there, she originated the position of in-house counsel at 22 Squared Inc., then one of the largest independently owned advertising agencies in the country. Over the course of the past decade with the, industry, with the agency, she has built out both the legal and compliant functions, overseeing a corporate restructure expanding the agency into three entities with four brands, providing the full range of agency services from consulting to media buy-in to broadcast production to content creation. Powerful woman. In December of 2020, Gilly was named Chief Legal Officer of Parent Company Guided by Good and now oversees legal and compliance work across the entire portfolio of companies. And in addition to her work doing all of that, as an attorney. Gilly is an author of novels for young adults, including her two novels co-authored with Kim Jones, who we heard from at our opening, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight and Why We Fly. Her novels deal with timely topics around racism, privilege, and allyship and have been on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been And they've been nominated for an NAAC Image Award and received starred reviews. Gilly lives in De- Decatur, Georgia with her three kids and her poorly behaved Bernadoodle. Although when we spoke, the Bernadoodle was behaving. (laughs) And when she's not lawyering or reading or writing, she can probably be found watching a hockey game. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here today, Gilly. And please join me in welcoming our keynote, Gilly Siegel.
2: Thank you, everybody. I am honored to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction, hearing it laid all out. That way makes me feel a little tired but also energized because I love what I do. I'm really thrilled to be speaking with a group of fellow lawyers today. My creative side hustle of writing and my day job don't often intersect, so it's particularly thrilling to me today that I get to merge the two. Um, I appreciate that beautiful introduction um, from both Lynn and Tanisha, and I loved hearing a little bit about what this conference has been um, doing over the last few days. Um, I agree that centering race um, and really dismantling systemic injustice is a mandate both in the legal assistance world, but I think across the rest of the way that we interact as a a society as well. I really especially love that one of the things that you mentioned was getting uncomfortable and that some of the sessions were painful. Growth comes from discomfort is a bit of a a mission statement of mine and my co-author Kim's. We talk about it a lot because I personally believe that that's where change starts, when you're uncomfortable and you can acknowledge it. And that's a little bit of what I'm gonna talk about today. So as you heard, I wear many hats. Uh, I'm a lawyer of a private corporation. I'm an author. I'm also a mom with a hockey-playing son. I'm a hockey fan and, I also love that Tanisha mentioned the universe wasn't aligning because I'm about to talk about that too. And this often surprises me, right? As a lawyer, it might not come as a surprise to you to hear that I'm a pretty logical, practical, um, linear kind of person. That's just kind of how I'm built. If you're a Myers-Briggs fan, I'm an INTJ, which is kind of as linear as it gets. So I don't often say things like the universe is speaking to me. But I have realized over about the last eight or 10 years of my life that sometimes the universe does speak to me. Sometimes a confluence of events occurs that makes me go, huh, a force is moving me. It's moving me in a direction that I wasn't headed before, and I need to pay attention to that. So in addition to being a lawyer and not saying things like the universe is speaking to me, I'm also a creative person and a storyteller. Um, And so in that capacity, I think one of the most powerful ways to enter into this conversation is through stories. It's part of why I write for young people. I think art is a portal into difficult conversations. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story of how I came to the place where I am now. When we were preparing for this conference and and talking about what I might talk with you guys about one of the topics we talked about was what's the difference between being an ally and being an accomplice in the fight for justice and I didn't start where I am now. We all start somewhere I certainly didn't start where I am now and I think it's hopefully will be helpful to share how I got here. And I'm not sitting here talking to you guys as an expert right I'm not someone who knows all there is to know about racial justice and inequity you've heard from a variety of different speakers with really powerful stories and really powerful information to share about how to move the ball. Um, So quite the contrary. But what I am is someone who cares really deeply about this and someone who's committed to action. So perhaps how understanding how I came to this place will help you and others find your way to action as well. So the first thing I wanna talk about is what we're gonna loosely call the ally years. We'll circle back to why I say loosely in a minute, I grew up in Florida, just outside of Tampa, Florida, and I'm Jewish, but it was a predominantly non-Jewish area. So and I went to a public school. There were maybe a handful of other Jewish kids in the public school. And I certainly experienced anti-Semitism growing up. I had teachers who would schedule tests on Jewish high holidays and refused to make them up. Uh, There was a large headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan nearby my home and they defaced our synagogue at some point in time. And as you can see, I remember these events from my childhood. I was younger than 10 when they happened, but they're still fresh in my mind. I remember talking as a community and a family about anti-Semitism, but I don't remember talking about race, not in my home very much and certainly not in the broader community. Now, I could blame growing up in the 80s and 90s, and now you can backpedal into my age, which I'm not ashamed of. I'm I'm 42 and I love it. Um, But that means that I was a kid in the 80s and the 90s, and I kind of call them the colorblind 80s and 90s, right? A lot of what we talked about in connection with race at that time period, to my recollection, was being colorblind as an attribute, as the way to look at race in America. And Vogue sang a song about it. Some of you guys remember, I'm not gonna sing it for you, nobody wants that. Um, But I remember singing along to that song and thinking that that was the call to action, right? Be colorblind. I don't see color and I mean that as a positive thing. And I, I really think that came from a perception that there was equality, that because I believed I treated others equally, they were equal. I think if you had asked me back then, if I was an ally, I would have said, yes, of course I am. I believe in diversity. I support equality. I support inclusion efforts. It's a value for me and my family. Now, where I am in 2021, I go back and listen to the En Vogue lyrics and I cringe at myself. I was missing the very thing that the song was highlighting. The world was making assumptions about the women singing the song because they were Black women. The world saw them as Black first and made negative stereotypical assumptions about them associated with that. And the song was really challenging that. And the fact that I missed it says something about me. More, by the way, than my shallow song lyric interpretation capabilities when I was a teenager. It actually says something really critical about my worldview and how it was formed but we'll come back to that in a minute. Before we do, a question. I always pose my questions for myself because I'm a participant in this, although I'm also speaking to you. And the question that I have is, was I an ally when I was sitting there singing along to En Vogue and saying, I'm colorblind? And the answer is, I don't ever answer that question ever. I don't give myself that label because what I've come to understand over time is the question isn't whether I think I'm an ally. It's whether the community I'm seeking to support thinks I'm an ally. And that leads me to those moments when the universe started moving me and moving my understanding. And one of the first things that happened was uh, shortly after I began working, and I was a mother of a very of two very young children at the time. My son was under the age of one, my daughter was under the age of four, and I was part of a leadership group here in Atlanta that went together to see a play. The play was called Brownie Points. It's by a wonderful Atlanta playwright named Janice Schaefer, and it was the story of the mothers of a brownie troupe that go on an ill-fated camping weekend, and they really get stuck in this cabin together. And the play is a lot about motherhood. It's a lot about being a working mother. So it spoke to me in many different ways, but the play was also about race and racism in the South. And after the play, um, because we were part of this leadership group, we got to have a talk back with the cast. If you've never participated in a talk back with a play cast, I highly encourage you to take the opportunity when it comes. It was an extraordinary experience. The cast sat on the stage and we remained in the audience and the playwright was there and we talked about the play and what it meant to them and how they interpreted the characters. And it was during the talkback that a Black woman in the audience stood up and shared her story of giving the talk, and you can tell I'm putting capital letters there, uh, the talk with her son. And I'm embarrassed to admit that was the first time I ever heard a Black mother share her story of having to tell her son how he was gonna interact with the police later on at risk of his life. And I sat there in the audience a little bit like, the cartoon character that gets a piano dropped on their head because I'm never going to have to have that talk. My son is blonde haired. He's got brown eyes. He is white presenting to the world. And that means that the police will interact with him in a different way. And I had no concept of what my fellow human Americans dealt with. And it was really, again, I'm not, I'm not proud to admit this. It makes me ashamed when I look back um, that I was so ignorant, but I was, and I don't think it's helpful to pretend that uh, I wasn't because we can't grow unless we acknowledge that we need to grow. So shortly after that, I had another experience. This one came out of the legal world. I was sitting at a CLE because, you know, we all have to get our CLE hours. And sometimes it's the hardest thing for us to do to fit it into our otherwise busy days. But I found one that was convenient for me time-wise. And I went, it was at my old law school, Emory Law School. And it was a panel about diversity in the legal world. And there were four panelists, um, all of whom were people of color, except for one there was a white guy on the stage. And I remember sitting in the audience and a lot of audience members kind of going, what's that white guy doing there? Why is he talking to us about diversity? And he said something that I will never forget, which was, if I don't talk about this in a predominantly white institution, and he was the chief legal officer of a very large corporation headquartered in Atlanta. He said, if I don't talk about this in a predominantly white institution, how will it ever change? If I leave this to my black colleagues and my colleagues who are people of color, what's gonna happen? Um, And it was, I think the first time that I really heard the notion that talking about race can't be solely left to people of color. So this is when I realized that the universe was speaking to me. The universe was saying to me, here are some things you didn't know. You should have known them. And again, I'm embarrassed to admit, I wish it wasn't the case, but we start where we are, whether we like it or not. And that was the moment where I really understood the universe was saying, you know, now. And the universe was also saying, move your tush. But where and how, I knew it was wrong. I knew what that white man had said on that stage was speaking directly to me. Um, I didn't know where to start. So I did what I always do. I talked to trusted friends. I also talked to my rabbi. And she said, you know what, there are others here who are asking the same questions as you. And there are people who want to work on this. So at the time, my synagogue was forming a racial justice group. And I joined, I figured, here's a group of people, here's a community that I'm already a part of, I feel an affiliation with, let's do this work together. And the first thing the group did was and actually remarkably, I don't know that I would have said this at the time, it was the right first step. Um, We did some educating of ourselves. We did some studying and reading. We read texts by white authors that focus on um, issues of race and white supremacy, white fragility, America's original sin. We did some reading by black authors, right? The new Jim Crow was one of them that was our texts. We did implicit bias tests. And we're fortunate also that it's a a large synagogue and it has a diverse population. And we had some members of our synagogue who are people of color share their experiences. And they shared another story that kind of blew my mind. The black members of our synagogue, they're Jewish. Their children have attended synagogue for years. They go to Sunday school they shared that every single Sunday, when they sit in the little cafe in our synagogue or sit in the synagogue's library waiting for their children to finish Sunday school, they experienced a form of challenge. Every single Sunday, someone would come up to them under the assumption that they didn't belong there and ask them, what are you doing? Do you need help? Now, was always pleasantly posed but of course it's a form of implicit bias. It's as my um, co-author Kim refers to, it's the death by a thousand cuts. The assumption that because they were people of color, they didn't belong there. And here's the honest truth. That has never ever happened to me in a synagogue. Not even on my first day in the building of the synagogue that I'm a member of now. Not at any synagogue i visited across the country. And now, Here's where we're coming to what I am learning about myself, what the universe is telling me I need to learn about myself. So clearly I'm Jewish. I've mentioned that at this point. It's an element of my identity I'm proud of and feel very connected to. We could get into a fairly deep discussion uh, of how that element of my identity should be viewed. But for these particular purposes, what matters is I present to the world as white. And my proximity to whiteness alters how the world engages with me. It also alters how my own Jewish community engages with me. And I think to me that was pretty close to the heart of the matter and the place where I needed to begin this journey from allyship to accomplice-hood. Um, And when I talk about this with predominantly white friends, this is often the moment when our defensive hackles kind of come up and we have the not I reaction Privilege, what are you talking about? My life was hard, knee jerk. I didn't create this, I didn't do this, I don't perpetuate this. And believe me, I understand that reaction. I felt those defensive hackles come up because I want to be an ally. I want to consider myself an ally. So this is where I lawyered myself, by the way. (laughs) I try not to do that. I try not to lawyer my non-lawyer friends very hard, but sometimes it happens. Um, You know, as lawyers, we use the passive voice very selectively in our writing and we do it with great intention. And so that's what I did here for myself to get over that knee-jerk moment. I structured my introductory question differently. Instead of asking myself, do I do something? I asked, do systems, policies, practices that inherently perpetuate disadvantage benefit me? And now having sat through a conversation where someone else shared that she has to talk to her son about how not to make himself vulnerable to police violence if possible, um, and hearing that members of my own synagogue were treated differently than me, the answer was pretty clear yes, my proximity to whiteness, and therefore the systems that I have access to benefit me. And so I try very hard to acknowledge that. It doesn't mean, and I always tell people, it doesn't mean that I haven't had hurdles to overcome or face challenges. It just means that one of those hurdles for me hasn't been my whiteness. And I'll give you another example of this from the book that Kim and I co-authored. I like to say art is a portal into difficult conversations as I mentioned before. And sometimes it's easier to start those conversations in a kind of inverse funnel, right? We're gonna talk first about the characters of the book and then move backwards into associating that with things that we do or say or our community does or says. So if there's a, our book is about two girls, one black and one white, who are at a football game um, at their school on a Friday night, and an incident becomes a mass disturbance, which is how the police refer to a riot, and the girls become kind of trapped in their school. They want to head home, they're going to team up together to get home safely, but in order to do so, they have to go out into this street that's been barricaded by the police. And when we first started writing this book, Kim wrote a beautiful passage about how terrified the Lena, who is the Black character, was to walk out into this big group of police. And what she wrote was the reason Lena says, I'm scared because they see me as a pit bull and they see you, Campbell, the white character, as a poodle. I think it's a beautiful uh, analogy for the way that the world interacts and makes negative stereotypical assumptions about people. And we got a lot of feedback on those early drafts of our book. And that was one of the chapters that people kind of routinely pointed at as as not kind of working. Something was off there. It was in a chapter um, that Lena tells. And Kim and I talked about this a lot. And Kim really fought very hard that that was a critical point that she wanted to get across. And... We talked about it and we worked on it and we revised it. And ultimately what we did was we moved that statement from a Lena chapter to a Campbell chapter. And I think that's pretty indicative of this notion of recognition of acknowledgement of where we are in this journey. Lena knows and understands what it means that the police view her differently than Campbell does. She isn't the one who needs to grapple with that fact. It's the white character, it's Campbell who does. And so we moved that into the Campbell chapter to force her to get uncomfortable with herself and start thinking. So this is the part where we talk about moving from allyship to accomplishship. We're going to talk about what those things are, but I want to start with a beautiful quote from a teacher named Dwayne Reed, who is on Twitter, um, and he said something that has also stuck with me, that Too often we view racism as a black problem to be empathized with when in fact it is a white problem to be solved. And I think that's the crux of the difference between ally and accomplice. There's lots of different definitions of these things. There's lots of different ways that people interpret them. Again, I'm no expert. So what I can do with is share with you my personal interpretation of this. So allies are people who educate themselves and they support, probably more passively support, the causes that they're seeking to be allies to. Um, You can think of these sometimes as the ones who are prominent on social media, right? They post their messages of support, they share articles, they share information. By contrast, an accomplice is someone who puts something personal on the line, someone who's willing to sacrifice something that they hold dear, for the cause of racial justice. They'll use their privilege and risk their own discomfort in order to do so. So again, we lead back to this question of, well, where do I start, right? I want to be an ally, I want to be an accomplice. What do I do? Do I get out there and march on the front lines? Do I join the protests? Certainly those are important steps. And if you feel that that's the way you're called to action, By all means, find a group. If you don't share the identity of the group that you're trying to support, listen first to what they need and let them lead. But I also wanna share that if that's not your journey, there are many other opportunities to do the work as we're starting to hear the phrase. And I I like metaphors, I'm a writer, can't help myself. Uh, I use another metaphor to identify opportunities in my own life. And I'm sharing it with you for two reasons. One is I hope it's a call to action. Because the second part is, I believe these opportunities exist for all of us. And once we identify them, it's easier to embrace them. So whenever I'm asked about what do I do, I get asked a lot, right? I I write about social justice, Kim and I have toured the country talking about it. And a lot of times I get this question, where do I start? And I say, the first thing you should do is extend your arms out as far as they go. And that's your wingspan. Imagine along every point of your arms, the things that you touch, the people, places, um, and events that you touch over the course of a month, that's your wingspan. And I guarantee you along your wingspan, there's a place to start. The number one, of course, is in your own home, right? I'm raising three children. I don't feel like I can preach to anybody except the three that I made. Um, So I'm going to do that. Uh, Talking to your own family um, isn't critically important to me, right? My children are experiencing the marginalization of being Jewish. Um, And so we talk about that. Black children are all growing up talking about racism. Children of color from other communities are talking about the ways that racism impacts their community. But often white households don't have to do that because those day-to-day interactions that create a threat don't exist for them. So I think we should, right? In my household full of children who are going to present to the world as white, we talk about racism actively. Um, There are really great texts by the way to do this, Um, I really advocate especially now moving starting with texts that perhaps are written by white people white fragility America's original sin. and moving to texts that are written by, by members of the community, again, that you're seeking to ally with. Some personal favorites of mine are Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad, stamped from the beginning. If you're more of a visual learner, I also really love Difficult Conversations with the Black Man by Emmanuel Acho, which is a YouTube series and I think it's great. Um, if you're a parent, do a reading club with your book club with your kids, Stamped, which is the young adult version of Stamped from the Beginning, co-authored by Jason uh, Reynolds, who's a fabulous YA author. And coming out later this year, there's a book um, by a a white man named Brendan Kiley about grappling with whiteness um, that I think is gonna be fantastic. The next place along your wingspan that I always advocate that people look, of course, is their friendship circle. And I challenge my white friends to answer this question. When's the last time a person of color was in your house? Not in the capacity of a service professional, right? Not your nanny and not a not a house cleaner. Do you have friends with whom you have dinner? Do you talk about one another's lives? So that we, I mean, I'll credit our fellow lawyer, Brian Stevenson, who talks about the power of proximity to deepen understanding. Kim and I were friends before we were ever partners in writing a book about race. We were friends through a book club, we were friends through writing retreats, and both of us will tell you freely without the base of that friendship we never could have written this book together. Another place that I always advocate that people look is work right we're all there a lot, although we might not physically be there these days we are there um, virtually. So. Most job places today, I think, have or are experiencing ex- exploring having diversity, equity, and inclusion um, committees or groups or executives, and certainly where many places are talking about their hiring, hiring culture ads versus culture fit, but again on this shift from, am I someone who supports the notion that my company has diversity um, to someone who is an accomplice and does things? So I encourage us all, every time we're in a meeting, look around the room and see who's in the room and not only who's in the room, but who's given time and space to express their opinions. And if the paradigm is not one of true equality among participants, ask ourselves how we can disrupt the unequal paradigm. And I'll give you an example from the legal world that I, from the advertising world that I really love. It doesn't involve my company, so I'm not disclosing any confidential information, but uh, not too long ago, for those of you who aren't on TikTok, um, some of the, my generation finds a little trouble to get into. I think it's a wonderful break from reality. So I love TikTok, but not too long ago, Kim shared with me an advertisement that a cosmetics company had put on TikTok and it featured uh, a song by a black artist, Uh, dance moves by black creators um, being recreated by four white models on TikTok. And when you look at that and you go, how did we get here? It tells me a couple of things about the culture in which it was created, right? No credit was given. I should also add to the black creators, which is a common problem on TikTok, right? So number one, it tells me that in the rooms where that was being created, all the way from the level of junior creative to senior management that approved it, either an advertising agency or internal to the company, there were either no people of color or the people of color don't have the political capital to speak up and say, I don't think this creative works. It also tells me that anyone in the room who is not a black person, who considers themselves an ally, maybe isn't an ally, they're not educated, or, and they couldn't recognize that what they were seeing was cause for concern, or they didn't wanna risk speaking up. So that's part of that equation of who's given time and space to speak and do they really have the ability to express opinions? And then the last place is the one that was the most effective um, entree for me into this discussion, my place of worship. Some people will tell you that 11 a.m. on Sundays is the most segregated hour in America. Um, and I. I, from my own experience, can say, I think that's relatively true. So go back. If your place of worship is a place where you find community, um, and it's not a diverse place in and of itself, figure out how you can partner with another place of worship in your community. And much like Kim and I started our friendship as friends before we talked about race, um, I really strongly advocate partnering as as a community getting to know each other creating that proximity first, before starting to do the social justice work together. So, allies and accomplices we have talked a little bit about both. I've talked about points in my life, when I felt like I am one or trying to be another. Um, is it a hierarchy? And is it one or the other? I think there are lots of valid questions about that. And probably up until about a week ago, I would have said it's a linear progression. 2021, we have to move from being allies to being accomplices. But I think what I've, what I'm coming to believe is that we can and must be both at various times. Um, Being an advocate for Racial justice is not a destination we arrive at. This is why I kind of dislike the word woke when white people use it, because I feel like sometimes they use it as like a badge. I'm going to slap the badge of wokeness on me. Here I am. Everybody trust that I'm one of the good ones. Um, but that's not really how it works, right? It's a journey that we undertake. I'm still learning. I freely admit that I'm still learning. I get it wrong sometimes, but I'm committed to continuing the journey, even when I stumble and have to get back up. So I think that's one of the most important things that I can do as a participant in this conversation. And I'm calling you all to action, I'm encouraging you, I'm asking you to join me today in doing two things. One is assess where you are, because as I mentioned at the very beginning, we have to start where we are. And then two is to extend your wingspan and decide one thing that you can do to take steps to make progress somewhere along your wingspan. And with that, I've talked a whole lot and I'm happy to entertain questions. So I'm gonna pause there and say, does anybody have any questions, topics for discussion? Um, I am open to anonymous questions if you wanna submit them anonymously through the Q and A session, um, or if you wanna submit them directly to me as a panelist and I won't use your name. Otherwise, thank you to the Massachusetts uh, Legal Assistance Corporation for having me. It has been a real honor.
0: Thank you so much. I wanted to kind of just, we have about 15 minutes um, until about 11 o'clock for questions and Gilly's also going to join us for our lunch networking hour from 12 to 12.30 for those who may wanna have more of a personal experience um, and have a a further conversation with her. But yes, why don't we go ahead and use the question and answer portal um, or the chat portal, or you can send your questions directly to Gilly if you have any questions. I wanted to, while folks are thinking about their questions um, I wanted to just go over, I took some notes and just wanted to highlight some of the things that Gilly um, addressed in her keynote. Um, allyship, you know, that stood out to me. You know, the linear thinking piece up, um, stood out to me as well, you know, and, and being able to relate that to being an attorney, because I think this work is some of it, it does have to move you on just a visceral level. And it's not linear, and there are starts and there are stops. And um, I think um, pointing that out was very, I think, very helpful. Um, This idea of allyship versus being an accomplice, you know, allies posting messages on social media in a way being somewhat disconnected from an action piece, an accomplice. I didn't get the middle part, but you said putting something on the line, using your privilege to, um, using your privilege um, to give up something. It's paraphrasing, but that piece about being an accomplice. Um, you talked about your wingspan, which I think was really, really important. A great visual to get people to think about what can I do? You know, your wingspan, where, what are you touching? The people, places and things and thinking about um, your day-to-day interactions. Um, what you said around, oftentimes white folks aren't talking about race because their day-to-day interactions don't pose a threat. And I will go as far as to say, pose a threat that can lead to death. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, so we no. don't talk about it, right?
2: Right. It's you know I think the perception there is that we don't we don't talk about it because we don't have to. But I would argue, of course, we have to because that threat exists for my fellow human beings. I don't have to be close to them and know them and love them as personal friends to care about that. I care about it because we do. We should. It's, it's a moral imperative.
0: Right. Your wingspan. You talked about your friendships. When's the last person, a person of color, was in your home without it being related to the service industry? That is a real question to ask yourself as a white person.
2: It is, especially, and I, and I, again, I say this as someone who is there, right? So I'm, I'm saying this with love and embracing it because I think, again, sometimes we get our hackles up, um, but a, a lot of times I will hear white people, you know. Call themselves allies and make that claim, um, but the question is: Are you close to people on a real personal visceral level? Because if you're not, what's happening is you're not hearing their real true stories. You are, you know, if your friends who are people of color are not deeply your friends, they're not because they don't know if you're an ally or not, able to trust you with their real voice. Um, and until you hit that moment, you. Uh, you know, your understanding is at a level up here, and it really needs to be at a much deeper, more granular level.
0: Thank you. Um, there was a comment in the the chat around. Um, I you mentioned a number of books and videos, and can someone add them to the chat? I wasn't able to write fast enough, so <laughs> maybe you can email them to me later, and then we'll make sure we get them up on the website and also the MLAC website, so that folks can refer back to them.
2: Yes, happily.
0: Okay, that one. are there any other questions um, that folks have if you want to drop them either in the chat or in the question to answer part or we can go ahead and get them answered um you talked about home too as far as the wingspan i just really like that visual because i think it's really hard for people to think about how do i get started and while you're thinking about how you're how you can get started to really keep this concept of the ally versus accomplice in the back of your mind and the home piece is so important because i think the work that we do in legal services, we're always thinking about external, right? And like what we can do to help, you know, I'm already doing the work, right? Maybe you want to talk about a little bit about that. Like I'm already doing the work because I'm working in legal services. I'm helping low income people. Some of those people happen to pe- people of color. I'm already doing the work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
2: So I, I think that's a really critical piece, right? Especially, you know, for us lawyers, uh, you know, a lot of us became lawyers because we do want change and we do want to help other people. And that's, it's really easy to be like, this is my job and I'm doing it and it's over here and it's outside. But you know, that again, that moment, that talk, when I realized there's a conversation, I don't have to have with my son because the police are going to interact with him in a different way um, that really made me pause and go, what am I talking with my children about? And are are they prepared to enter the world um, and be anti-racist? And the answer is no, not unless I start that conversation with them. It's, I view it as my job and my, my responsibility. And it's, It's hard, you know, especially if you don't come from a background that shares marginalization, so I talk a lot about being Jewish and sometimes people ask me like what's that got to do with anything. And the answer is nothing I don't play the oppression Olympics right I don't we don't compare, but I, the one thing that I do think it brings is if you experience some form of marginalization it primes you to empathy Um, and so I. We, we can talk about that, but it, it's not enough for me to say to my children, you might experience forms of marginalization. It's to challenge them to see. So here's another good example. Um, I, I live in a very diverse area. My daughter's friend's group, my daughter's friend group has Um, A lot of, you know, has black kids and Asian kids and, you know, white kids, Jewish kids, Muslim kids. And they were all out at our kind of town square one day goofing around and joking around and jumping on park benches. And one of the black kids said, everybody has to stop this. I can't behave this way in public. because, and if you do, and I'm part of this group, you're potentially endangering me. Because if someone here gets singled out for disparate treatment, it's not going to be you white kids, it's going to be me. And when my daughter came home and shared that story, it was another moment where I went, I'm failing if I'm not talking to her about that, right? It shouldn't solely be the Black boy's responsibility to warn his friends. We should be primed to empathy and say, is there something that I do without thinking twice about it that endangers someone in my life, in my circle, on my wingspan? So those are the kinds of things that you can just start talking about at home. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm an author. So of course, I'm a big believer in books. If it's hard for you to enter this conversation, enter it through fiction, talk about what characters are doing instead of what you were doing, and then inverse funnel your way into from what the characters do say and think into what happens in your particular community.
0: Thank you so much, I'm Gilly. We do have some questions that have come through through the question and answer portal. So I'll go ahead and ask those now. Um, and just for time, we have about seven minutes left for the session. So, how would you suggest navigating the conversation about DEI if you're met with defensiveness by the leadership in your company slash organization?
2: That's an excellent question. I really, I really love it. Um, I think allyship is really crucial here, right? If you're the only one talking about it, I think you have to start the conversation. And I would really advocate that you start with people who are not people of color, right? How many other allies in your organization can you get together to broach the topic so you're not the only voice who's talking about it? Um, The more people that raise this to your organization, um, the more likely I think it is that organizations will listen if they're not already. working on this matter. And then the other thing is, um I think there needs, you know, we we all need to be willing to sacrifice something personal, right? So if you're an executive sitting in a meeting and this conversation is coming up and you're afraid to say, we are not considering diversity, equity, and inclusion in this, you're sitting in a hiring meeting and you have people talking about culture fits instead of culture ads, you know, you have to be willing to take the heat, take the flack for saying we're looking at this, we're going about this the right way. The wrong way, sorry. But again, allyship here is is key, right? Because the more voices that are advocating for this, the harder it is to ignore us.
0: Great, thank you. Next question, even though developing friendships with BIPOC seems like an important place to start for white community members, I I also think it's important to not seek friendships with BIPOC as something for white people to cross off their allyship checklist. I don't want someone seeking me out as a friend just because of the darker color of my skin. They also need to do a lot of their own learning because it's not fair to put that burden on people of color. How should folks approach developing these friendships?
2: I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely critical point. I'm so glad this person made it. It's It should not be there. There's no checklist to cross off, right? Um, and we shouldn't behave that way and we shouldn't seek out the the black friend, right? Um, it has to be really organic and intentional and, and meaningful, right? So, you know, I think what it really comes down to is looking at: Are you placing yourself in spaces where it's only white, um, or where if you are, um, I'll share an example, and I have her permission to share this example because um, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, you know, are you if you're if you're having a work gathering and you're inviting people to it, and it's outside of work, you're going to lunch. Um, Make sure that you're going to lunch with all the different people that all the people in the group are included that uh, a friend of mine once said, a group of my colleagues at work um, went out for a hike, and she's black and she said nobody invited me and afterwards she asked why didn't anybody invite me and they went we assumed you wouldn't want to come. My goodness, what a racist assumption. They probably didn't intend it that way, but that doesn't excuse it, right? Because impact matters more than intent. So it should be real. It should be organic. And it's just challenging yourself to say, am I only in a community um, that's white and trying to change that, seeking out places where for Kim and I, it was a book club that we became friends at.
0: Right. Right. I mean, friendships obviously develop organically. And so no one wants a fake friend, you know, at the same time, it's putting yourself in those places where you may be able to meet and develop those organic relationships with people of different races and, you know, going all the things that you said i'm going to move along here with the questions because we're running out of time and i want to make sure we get to as many as we can before we have to close how has covid and social distancing impacted your ability to extend your wingspan here we are in this moment mostly all still working remote from our homes challenged to both keep robust relationships and build new relationships so how has covid and social distance impacted that and maybe how do you recommend that folks extend their wingspan and a still remote space.
2: Yes, it's, it's certainly extremely difficult at the moment, right? Because again, a particularly this concept of organic relationships that develop where you're, you're going to lunch with people, you're going to coffee and you're developing a, a real and true friendship, it's harder to do when we're only meeting virtually. So the first thing I think is we have to acknowledge that it's it's difficult at the moment. And that's why I have to remove myself from my lawyerly linear thinking and acknowledge there are going to be starts and stops and fits, right? So number one is it's, a, it's okay that it's difficult at the moment. Um, but there's always a way. So um, the my organization, for example, routinely has diversity and inclusion related events. Um, especially as a busy lawyer in the role that I play now, um, it's hard sometimes to carve out time. The number one thing is to prioritize it. I have time in the day for those things that I choose to have time for. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but at the end of the day, it's within my control. So am I prioritizing attending those events even though they're virtual and even though it's hard and even though I could sit there on the virtual and be doing my work over here, um, am I prioritizing being there and being present? Um, and as a man, here's another one that I think we can do even virtually, right? If if you if those opportunities are available, number one, seek them out. Number two, as a manager, are you ensuring that the people who work for you understand that it's a priority for you and have time to do it? So this is another really big one that I'm trying to counsel myself to do these days: is share with the my direct reports when DEI uh, events at my company are happening, and also saying to them. What can I take off your plate to ensure you have time to devote to this? Not, please add this on top of the other 1,700 things you're going to do today, but what can I as your manager do to ensure this is not just accessible to you, but something you can really participate in? And that's still possible virtually to do things like that.
0: That's that's what you call leadership. (laughs)
2: Well, and again, I don't, I'm not perfect. Uh, This is a journey for me, but that, for example, is one of the things that I hadn't done in the past that I am um, focusing on this year is saying to my direct reports, how can I make it possible for you to devote yourself to this?
0: Yes, that's, that's, that's a really wonderful, I think, nugget and tip and tool. What can I do? What can I take off your plate? Or even further, what can I do to make this possible for you to participate? Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think we'll just end with this question. It was, it was this. It's along the same lines. And actually, I have the other questions that were asked in the question and answer portal. I've screenshotted them, and so we can start the um, lunch networking hour with those questions. And I do apologize that we weren't able to get to the other questions. Um, but I do have them, and we will. Um, we will get to them in the, the following session, but just can you say a little bit more about being an accomplice in, in the workplace and some of the other tips and, and suggestions you may have for that? Yeah. I think a lot
2: of it is having the courage to speak up right when you see it. I think all of us are a little afraid sometimes of expending our, we all know we have political capital in the workplace, right? You can't, you can't get everything you want, you can't say everything you want to. And sometimes we're afraid to expend our political capital to speak up in in meetings, you know, again, are we having a meeting and if I'm looking around and it's Uh, Or here's another better example right if we're giving a presentation if we're giving a pitch, is it only white people who are your speakers, if you are a white person who notices that the only speakers in your presentation your conference whatever are white. um, Can you speak up and say, I noticed this. Um, I don't think it's right. I'm going to volunteer to give up my speaking spot so that someone else can take my place. So that would be a personal sacrifice, right? Speaking spot, time with executives, that's all meaningful in the workplace. Can you give that up so that you're ensuring that you don't have an all white panel? That applies by the way in the the speaking world outside, right? I speak a lot um, because a lawyer and an author, if I get a list of panelists and it's all white, particularly if it's all white men, I'm going to say, I'm not comfortable being on this panel. It's not diverse. I'd be happy to recommend, to you a a set of you know a list of people who would be good replacements for me but i'm not going to participate in that and i want my spot to go elsewhere so that's sort of one small concrete thing you can do
0: that's a great suggestion and it's just very similar to you know one of my colleagues and mentors says this that if she walks into a room just like we're in a place now where if we walk into a room with all men we're like there's a problem There aren't any folks who represent or present as as female in this room. That's an issue. We have to start thinking in that same way when it comes to race. If you walk in a room and it's all white, specifically all white male presenting, then we got to speak up. We got to say something. And being an accomplice means that you give something up. So you give up your spot. You say, you know what? I'm willing to say that I don't want to be a board member anymore in order to make room for someone that would make this place a more diverse place. So Um, Gilly, you've dropped so many nuggets today, (laughs) this morning. We want to hear more from you. We're going to get an opportunity to hear more from you. Um, I want to encourage folks to join the networking session from 12 to 1230. She may be able to stay a little bit longer. Maybe not, but we'll have her for at least a half an hour. (laughs) I have the questions that were asked in the question to answer quarter that we did not get to, so we will cover them. We're going to end now and take a short break. Again, please come back not before noon at 1130. We're going to have a closing performance from Um, a dance, a phenomenal, phenomenal African dancer and drummer from Mali. So take a short break, go back to the website, click the access link to get you into the session for 11.30 with Joe. And then what we'll do is after he's done, we'll start our session, our networking session from 12 to 12.30 with Gilly. And then following that, our afternoon and final session of the conference. So again, it's been a pleasure, Gilly. We're gonna take a pause. We'll hear from you again. And um, I hope everyone um, enjoys their break and has a wonderful afternoon and enjoys the rest of the conference. See you all later. Thank you, everybody. Bye.